Good morning. We are into week three of our preaching series going through the book of Matthew in the New Testament that we've called The King We Need. Now, when we think of kings and queens and royals today, we've reached this point where we consider it totally normal and to be expected for them to do things for the sake of the lowly and the needy. You might we think back, think of Queen Elizabeth visiting Aberfan in 1966 after the uh, mining disaster there and publicly crying. Uh, and I think later on kind of re reflecting and regretting that she didn't go sooner. You might think of Princess Diana uh, hugging a child with HIV AIDS at a time when that was thought to be a very dangerous thing to do. Or Prince William this year launching a campaign to end homelessness in the UK. All of these things are, we consider really par for the course for a king or queen or a royal. But historically, none of that is normal behaviour for a king or queen. And in the first uh, two verses of Matthew chapter 2, which we're going to be Matthew 2 uh, this morning, we are introduced to two kings. There is King Herod, known as Herod the Great, um, who really is kind of a, a client king who's got authority, but he is under Roman authority, really. And then also the one who has been born King of the Jews. Now, these are two very different kings. One is, uh, is fine with exercising authority and dominion over weaker people and kind of making it clear that they are weaker, which is the historically normal thing for a king to do. And the other king is one who goes on to live a life and die a death of humble service for the sake of the lowly and the needy. Now, I, I would make the case that it is only because of the influence of this second king, King Jesus, that we are where we are and where we now think it is normal or even actually right. It is what a monarch should do to publicly cry at the death of innocent children, for example. Now, I'm not going to major on that point, um, that it was this baby King Jesus who has actually shaped Western civilization as we know it. I think actually that's hard to argue against, but I'm not majoring on that. I do want to ask this question. What kind of king was and is Jesus? Because you do get all different types, historically speaking. How does this passage in Matthew chapter 2 help us to answer that question? What kind of king are we dealing with? This one who was born king of the Jews. It's um, a passage, Matthew 2, that we are probably all over familiar with. And it, it would be hard as we kind of read and listen to not picture some nativity scene that we have already thought of in our mind or seen and kind of listen like we've just heard it all before. But actually, we'll almost certainly assume some wrong bits as well, probably. Uh, here, just kind of by way of example, Time magazine ran a piece on the Magi uh, a few years ago with this image, um, which, I mean... So many questions. I don't know what the first thing that your eye is drawn to, uh, kind of question that comes into your mind, maybe is the guy 
the scantily dressed guy at the back with very pale skin and sun looks like he's got kind of tan marks I don't know what's going on there I mean they've got some things right probably there, there, weren't, there were not just three major islands, three presents but who knows how many of them and the kind of ethnic diversity of them that's probably right but I don't think any of them would have been that white um, that, that maybe is what you, um, then you've got Mary, who um, for a probably a youngish teenager is not looking great for her age, and again, strangely white and ginger, unlikely. Then you've got the kind of weirdly tiny baby Jesus with the weirdly tiny head. Um, it's just, I mean, medieval art was weird. We could go on, but we probably don't have the same errors when we think of this kind of scene, but we have different ones probably and it's not I'm not just about myth busting for the sake of it like oh actually did you know it the, the, the reason we miss things when we picture it wrong or, or when we assume too much of the passage when we try and kind of if we don't come with it fresh we will miss things you've got to do the hard work of imagination of, of empathy really so anyway with, with that said I'll read Matthew chapter 2 this familiar story but actually uh, some uh, uh, wonderful things in there. Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard all this, he was disturbed. You kind of note that word. And all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realised that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, change from disturbed, furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. 
Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So what kind of king is this King Jesus? Again, there's two kings that are introduced in, in this passage. And who has authority over the other? Because you can't actually have two kings in the same place. One has to be the ultimate king. And Herod seems to have much more power and authority than the child he seems to be in the kind of better position and yet it is the child who is the king over the other king jesus is the king of kings early in the passage herod gets wind that there is someone in his kingdom who is being hailed as another king and that doesn't again in history it doesn't go down well if that happens um, and he is not having it he is disturbed, it says in verse 3. Disturbed. So kind of, this is not good. Not, not frantic, but he's, he's not happy. It should, though, be pretty easy work to get rid of this other king. You've got, you've got a Roman ruler who can do basically what he wants against an obscure baby of ostracized parents. And when he is disturbed, he starts by just using the Magi from the east to find out how to kill the baby. Well, I'll just kill this one baby. I'm just a bit disturbed, but no problem, kill the baby. God warns the Magi, and so plan A fails. Um, after the prophetic dream, Herod's plan A, Herod then goes from disturbed to, verse 16, furious. One translation says he flew into a rage. And now he's willing to kill a lot more babies if he has to. Now, Actually, still, we can think, oh, this is, but, but probably it was only a dozen to 20 babies. It was, it was a small village, really, Bethlehem. Um, and as well, I don't actually know if, if Herod assumes that he got him in the end. Don't know, if, because, because it kind of he doesn't seem to find out before he dies. But they flee to Egypt, again, after being warned in a dream. Um, and then Herod dies in, in about 4 AD. And Jesus, this baby from obscure and ostracized parents, is alive today and is ruling and reigning today. So whilst it looks like a mismatch one way, it looks like Herod, it should be easy for Herod. Actually, Herod's plans repeatedly return to him empty and fail. And it is, in fact, a mismatch the other way around because God's plans never return to him empty. They never fail. David and Goliath, right? It, it is a mismatch, but not in the way that people generally expect because no one can stand against God. If it's just David versus Goliath, then yeah, back Goliath. But Goliath versus God is an even bigger mismatch. 
If it's just Herod versus a baby, then yes, back, back Herod. But if it is Herod versus God, it's a mismatch the other way. What, what kind of king are we talking about? A king that no one can stand against, however powerful they consider themselves to be. Makes me, I don't know if you've seen the Disney Hercules film, but there's a bit in it where Hades is trying to get rid of the baby Hercules um, and he's got his kind of little minions and, and it should be easy just to get rid of a baby. But then there's this scene where he's kind of just throwing these little demons around and the baby's laughing and it's easy and it should be easy for Hades to beat a baby. But the thing is, the baby is a powerful baby. <laughs> it's a bit like that, but don't go too far down there. Now, you might still think, yeah, that's all pretty run-of-the-mill, King of Kings stuff. But, but it is helpful to remind ourselves that it really is remarkable that we have even heard of Jesus. That, that, that should have been it. If, if, if he be were not God, I think it would have been it. And he would have, Herod would have won. Jesus would have died. But we have heard of him, this King of Kings. So what kind of king is the king of kings? And he is a humble king. If, if he was the king of kings, then we can think, well, why not just you know, show up and clearly have more power and glory than everyone else? Why would you be born into poverty and obscurity rather than wealth and fame? And it's not because he wanted to show that he was so powerful, even when he was the underdog, right? Because Jesus is never the underdog. It is because he is gentle and lowly of heart and he wanted to show that. Again, that Jesus is a humble king. I know that can sound cliche, but we've got to kind of declutter our minds to see the wonder of it. But before Jesus, the concept of humble king would have been a total oxymoron a contradiction in terms you can't you can't be both a humble and a king it is only because of his influence that it seems normal to us let's see how he is a humble king a couple of things to draw your attention to to show that he is humble and not distant from the weak and lowly but identifies with them now you may notice there's no mention of the stable here in in Matthew 2 you get that in, in Luke, but not here. Actually, when the major I get there, he is the, Joseph and Mary and Jesus are in a house, not a stable. And actually, there's no mention of the birth. I mean, the, the verse one starts after Jesus was born. It's kind of a non-event in Matthew's mind for whatever reason. Um, so Joseph, at the beginning of this story, Joseph, Mary uh, and Jesus are in a house in Bethlehem. And Jesus is probably, as well, two years old, to somewhere uh, around there for various reasons because Herod went on to king all those under two and it probably did just take a long time for the Magi to see the star and so probably it's, we're talking about a two-year-old here not not a baby sitting on Mary's lap which makes for a different scene in your mind doesn't it uh, I don't you know terrible twos Jesus is sinless I so I but I imagine he was a toddler who ran around and was was in, that's an interesting concept uh, that, that that's the scene Anyway, that's, that's where it starts. And then Joseph is warned in a dream to go to Egypt with a two-year-old, probably, about 50 miles, to flee, to save their life. Now, some time later, Herod dies so they can go back to Bethlehem. Yay. 
But then another prophetic dream with another descendant of Herod to avoid. And so actually they kind of have to go, no, not to Bethlehem, to, to Nazareth instead. Effectively, Jesus has been a refugee twice as a, as a young child. Now, and we, do, we don't know anything of, of their friends, kind of extended family, and whether they just had any or they'd already had to cut ties. Serious trauma that Jesus and his family went through. What kind of king do we have? We do not have a high priest or a king who is unable to sympathise with us in our weaknesses. In a world of refugees and asylum seekers, Jesus says, in a way that relatively few people can say, let alone kings, he can say, I get it. I, he, he has been a refugee as a young child. We, we love a, a rags to riches story. Jesus is riches to rags. It's one way we see his humility in the way that what he goes through. And another way is that we'll see in a moment how Jesus is the fulfillment of it all again. But a, a wonderful but also terrible prophecy is fulfilled in Matthew 2, which shows the empathy and care of God and, and his word. Now, there's no other record in, in, in history of Herod killing twos and under in, in Bethlehem. Now, there's a lot of record of Herod the Great historically, but no record of this, which is totally to be expected because, again, relatively, there weren't that many, and also because weeping mothers do not write history. Now, it can be hard to accept when you actually think this passage through, that whilst Jesus survived, because he was warned in a dream, whilst the baby child Jesus survived for now, actually a load of other baby boys were killed and their parents, parents were robbed. And we kind of, when you're reading it, you want to just move on because it's so unpalatable to think of that. But here it is in the Christmas story. This, the, these baby boys who are killed and mothers who are stripped of their children. And the prophecy from Jeremiah, 600 years prior, in, in verse 18, shows that, that God was mindful of these mothers and that he saw their weeping and great mourning, as it says. That they were refusing to be comforted. That is empathy and understanding at a profound level from, from God. God knows that we will endure things that are so tough we won't even want to be comforted. Not just generally, it's not just saying, yeah, people will generally, but specifically. He knows who will endure what. We can think of God knowing things ahead as just a, a, a theoretical, intellectual thing. But I think we could call this compassionate foreknowledge. He doesn't just know, but he is compassionate in advance. Historically, it is a non-event. This What happens with these few babies that are killed? Historically, that, that is the reality. But God sees it and cares deeply for those who endure it. And he won't let us go through this story without mentioning those mothers and those fathers. 
and you are no different. Historically, we're all non-events, right? We're not going to go down in history. And yet, God sees your struggle. It may be hard to believe that anything or anyone could comfort you if you're in the real depth of it. But God is the God of all comfort. What are you facing? Someone you know. What is someone you know facing? God sees. God cares. God empathises. In fact, God then enters into that world of weeping and great mourning in this baby Jesus. And Jesus does not just empathise and care, but he enters in, he identifies and he shares and takes the burdens. That's the kind of humble king that we are talking about. This is not what kings were like before the influence of Jesus. We now think humility and service and empathy are as normal and good for kings and queens as anything, but that's all because of his influence. Maybe it should make us think twice about him if we haven't done before the great influence he's had. He is a humble king of kings and he's also the king of all people. He is the king of the Jews, the king of Israel and the fulfilment of everything for them as a people. We saw this two weeks ago uh, in this uh, series and Matthew is at pains to make clear throughout his gospel and throughout this chapter that Jesus is the fulfillment. How many times, if you read it through again, does it say, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, as the prophets had said. He's at pains to show Jesus is the fulfillment. Actually, the whole New Testament is really at pains to do that. In the whole New Testament, here's a stat for you, in the whole New Testament, there are only 12 chapters that don't have a reference to the Old Testament. 12 in the whole New Testament. And probably those 12 have allusions as well. And that makes a big difference to how we read the Bible, those things. But it is so important that we see he is the king of all people. That is me and you included. And not just some people, Israel. It, it may seem obvious. I've already said he's the king of kings. Then probably, yeah, that if stands to reason he's the king of all people. But I think king of kings can sometimes feel distant and irrelevant as if he is in charge and important, but not necessarily for you and me. But he is the king of all people. Magi come from the east to to worship and bow down to the king of the Jews. So he is the king of Israel, but this is non-Israelites coming to bow down and worship him. And it would have been a profound scene to be bowing down to a a two-year-old, probably. And, and how that would have worked itself out. We don't know much about these men, really, or whether they were faithful in the end or actually kind of a bit dodgy due to their background. But they get this right. And they are a picture for the whole world. He is the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings. And he is the king of you and me. And that's whether we acknowledge it or not, right? So if you're British... You can say that Charles is not your king if you want, but it doesn't make it true. He is your king. And I acknowledge as well that there is a difference between uh, saying and acknowledging someone as your king and just happening to be in their kingdom. Jesus is the king of all people. 
and he longs for people to come and recognize that. We are his subjects, along with, by the way, history itself and nature itself. Everything is subject to him. All things are held together through him. I, we, we don't know exactly how this star thing happened uh, and what it was, this bright star, how, how the Magi knew to come and worship the King of the Jews. How did they deduce that? One um, kind of possible answer to it, which seems reasonable, is that the planets Jupiter and Saturn aligned to create what looked like a big star, which apparently happened three times in the year 7 BC, so it's possible it happened around then. And Jupiter was seen as a royal planet, a kingly planet, and Saturn sometimes represented the Jews. And so the Magi possibly just came to the conclusion, well, there is a new king of the Jews as Jupiter and Saturn align. We don't know. However it happened, it was no accident. Jesus made it happen that way because all people and all history and all the universe are subject to him. And he is the saviour king. That is, he is the king we need. He didn't just come to empathise, but to save. King Jesus and his kingdom are different, as we'll see as we go into to the rest of the book of Matthew in the new year. He is different to most kings. He doesn't save by killing, but by dying. Not by taking lives, but by giving his own life. That was why he came. And, and Matthew makes loads of allusions to this in Matthew chapter 2. You might think, well, I'll come and jump into Easter. Well, yeah, I am, and that's, I'm fine with that. Uh, but Matthew wants us to do that from, from Matthew 2. There's a lo load of allusions to Matthew 27, which is when Jesus died in order to save. I've got another table for you with some, um, with some parallels and some allusions and some contrasts as well. Um, I encourage you, actually, why don't you turn to Matthew uh, 27, if you've got it open, then just flick across to chapter 27, and we'll see some of these parallels. Uh, so in Matthew 2, we've had four prophetic dreams, four dreams with warning. There's one actually in Matthew, end of Matthew 1 as well, so there's been five. And then there are no more in the Gospel of Matthew until you reach Matthew chapter 27 and verse 19. When it says, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. So you get this, this link. And actually the contrast is in Matthew, Joseph, in Matthew 2, Joseph is so obedient, does exactly what is told. Pilate doesn't really heed the warning here. In Matthew 2. Jesus is called the king of the Jews by the non-Israelite Gentile Magi. He isn't called that again until Matthew chapter 27, uh, verse 29. And the soldiers, that says they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. Now in chapter 2, it's, it's genuine worship. Here it is mockery. But you've got Gentiles calling him king of the Jews. Matthew 2, 
nature responds to what's happening with the birth of Jesus, with this bright star, with this kind of anomaly in nature. We don't really see that happen when kind of just nature responds to uh, what is happening in the, in the story until we get to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 45, which says from noon until three in the afternoon, dark, until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Matthew 2, with the birth of Jesus, there's a bright light. Matthew 27, with the death, there's a great darkness. And uh, in verse 11 of Matthew 2, this anomaly, anomaly in nature leads Gentiles to bow down and worship him. And in Matthew 27, verse 54, it says, When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. This one seems a genuine moment of worship. It was always pointing forward to this, when the king would die to save his people from their sins. We need him to die for us. And from the beginning, he came to live. And it was always, Matthew wants us to do this. The Bible wants us to look forward. What did he come for? He came to be a savior king. One more um, to wrap it up. We need to respond to this Jesus, this, this one who is the king of kings and the king of all people, the, the baby who went on to define how kings and queens should behave and who, I would say, has shaped civilization as we know it, the baby born who is king of all. We, we can't sit on the fence when we're thinking about him. Either we dismiss him and... Gotta have good reason for that. We do that intentionally, or we come to him, and mercifully, he is also an inviting king. We can often uh, think of Christmas as best for those. Christmas is for those who have Instagrammable lives, who who will have a lovely, massive. Christmas lunch and you can get cool pictures at cool angles of their Christmas lunch and their lovely Christmas. Christmas is for those people to really enjoy it and, and live that up. Now, true Christmas, the, 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 the real Christmas message is for the weepers and mourners and, and for those who refuse to be comforted. That is who the humble king came to identify with. Jesus is very clear that he, he didn't come for the healthy with Instagrammable Christmases as much as he came for the sick and for those that really know they need help, who, who are willing to accept that. This, this humble saviour, king of kings and king of all people says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy, heavy laden and I will give you rest. Tom Wright, uh, in, in his commentary on these verses, says, listen to the whole story, Matthew is saying. Think about what it meant for Jesus to be the true king of the Jews, and then come to him by whatever route you can and with the best gifts you can find. What, what kind of king is he? He is one who invites you to come and find true 
eternal rest in him. He doesn't expect much from us by way of gifts, by the way. What he wants is your heart. He is the one that you need. So I agree and I add my own deep encouragement. Come to him by whatever route you can.